and he's like, we're here to see Omar Sharif. I was like, what the? F-? And he's he's like, just one second. The receptionist like, is he expecting you? He's like, yes, 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 yes. So he calls him. I'm like, oh, we're gonna get done. I swear, this is this is awful. This is an awful plan. Hello and welcome to This Is My Cinema. On this podcast from the British Independent Film Awards, we talk to some very special guests and draw back the red curtain on the cinema experiences that shaped their lives. I'm Rihanna Dillon. And I'm Michael Leader. And as well as learning about what films and cinemas inspired our guests, we're also going to be asking them about what makes the ideal cinema trip. What would their perfect film be? Their perfect location? And of course, what would be their perfect cinema snack? And today's guest had some wonderful answers to all of those and loads of other wonderful stories too. He is the wonderful Amir El Masri. Yes, you might have seen Amir on the small screen over the last few years in some great telly like The Night Manager, also in Industry and Jack Ryan. I saw him on the big screen in a very small role in The Rise of Skywalker a couple of years ago. But right now he's in Limbo. In fact, as you listen to this podcast, it may be in cinemas. And of course for Limbo, he was nominated for Best Actor at this year's Biffa Awards. Clearly a very, very talented young man and he tells this amazing story about meeting Omar Sharif, which is just so inspiring and sweet. And after we finish doing this intro, I'm going to go back and listen to it again. So here he is, Amir El Masri. Amir El Masri, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a real treat to talk with you. So for the duration of our podcast, this is your cinema and we have this dream set up for our guests where we have a cinema of your choice to play a film of your choice and you can pick any film and any cinema. This is very tricky. What comes to mind for you? Off the bat, I would say The Curzon Soho. I love the interior. I love they've kept it how it was from when it first opened, I imagine. And also the local one growing up in Park Royal in Acton. It's just your standard. But I just have so many memories of going to the cinema with my parents, with my friends, watching things like Babe, Pig in the City, stuff like that, or (laughs) Toy Story. Yeah, real, real eclectic mix of of, of cinema from the get-go. It inspired me to get into acting until I realized I was a human being and I can't really play a pig or a toy. So would you make us watch Bay Pick in the City or Toy Story? Or do you have another film that comes to mind for the thing you'd make us watch? I think seven-year-old me would probably say, yes, what are you talking about? Of course, babe, come on. Or Stuart Little or something like that. But I think actually the, the benefits of having two older brothers, I was gifted with a lot of films like Goodfellas. Predominantly, my oldest brother, Ahab, was a huge Robert De Niro fan. It still is. And so being introduced to his work at such an early age and seeing his relationship with Scorsese as well throughout the years all the way through to The Irishman and seeing how they work together and that is something I would love for my own career to have a a long-term relationship with with a director who just knows how I work and we can just be in sync with one another. Actually, do you know what? With Ben Sharrick, we had that in limbo. Within the first week, I knew what he wanted and he knew how I would play out a scene. So there was this kind of symbiosis happening where we would just know what the other one wanted and just carry on with the scene. So yeah, I would say something like Goodfellas or Taxi Driver. If I'm looking for a real performance-driven film that I want everyone to watch with me as a cinema, real cinema experience that really takes you through all the emotions, 
I would say more recently, Victoria. Oh, wow. Ooh. Yeah, that's an yeah. excellent idea. The emotions I felt from start to finish, I needed to hold on to someone. Genuinely, I thought, I thought she was insane and she's absolutely remarkable. There was no predictable nature to the film at all. And it unfolds like a play. There were three acts. And the first one, just you are thrust into this whirlwind of a new setting, a new surrounding, how exciting it is to start your life from zero again. And then act two, you sort of don't trust the, her surroundings. You don't, who are these guys that are mm. leading her on? Are they good people? And then, yeah, you're, you're taken into this action thriller at the end where she's, she's taken on a responsibility for someone that she's only just met. Is that something that you would love to do yourself? Do that sort of one shot film? It makes me think of the Woody Harrelson film. Yeah. It's sort of, it's even more of a stunt because that was all broadcast live like theatre, right? Victoria, they had two or three takes to do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Victoria had an easy job compared to us. Easy. I was watching it going, ha! (laughs) I think it's a gift for any actor to perform in front of a camera like they would on stage. Mm to be in sequence. You know exactly where you've come from. Naturally, you have to know that anyway, but to feel those emotions throughout the day really, really helps you. It allows you to get into character much quicker. And you you feel the adrenaline because with Lost in London, I felt like if, if I make a mistake now, there's literally no going back. You can't ask for another take. You just have to go with it. And it allows you to just be on your toes and improvise or listen and react to what's going on around you. You're in a fight and flight mode when you know you're performing in one take and live. You know exactly what to do if someone else either misses their cue. So you actually have each other's backs. It's an incredible feeling. I remember talking to you before and you were saying about how you first got that feeling of thriving on that live experience when you were on stage in a cat suit <laughs> like in a school play <laughs> a cat suit that your mum had made yeah you. yeah yeah so this was the plan from quite early on you sort of had it in your mind from quite a young age that this was your stage right definitely definitely my mum noticed I was very shy and she noticed I grew in confidence when I would put on something I would wear something that I if I even put on a cape a scarf and just tied it around my neck I'd be somebody else. I would do that and I would feel like I'm not a mirror anymore. And I'm not even joking, on a school run, as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, my mom would go pick up my brother and I would be wearing this little cape around my neck and I would confidently walk holding her hand to school, knowing that I can just walk there with confidence. And, I, and if I didn't have it, I would be hiding behind my mom's legs, waiting for my brother to come out of the school gates. I don't know why. But I think it allowed me to understand that, and, and it allowed her to understand that actually maybe acting is a nice little gateway into gaining my confidence and it started out as a hobby but I became really addicted to it from that play actually from the musicians of Bremen from playing a a cat I tried to make it as much as as possible at the time but there's no there's no getting away from the fact that you have to purr and meow every five minutes (laughs) but it helped with many of the conversations we've had with actors we talk about the moment of inspiration seeing something on screen or experiencing that play that made people think that's what I want to do but it sounds like you came with the way around you already knew that you wanted to be on stage and knew the value of putting on costumes and characters but was there still at some point in your childhood young adulthood where you saw that film saw that play saw that actor that inspired you and said I want to do that 100% Omar Sharif 
Lawrence of Arabia from the minute you see him on screen coming into frame. And I remember turning to my dad and going, who is that? And he said, that's Omar Sharif, he's, he's Egyptian, like us. And I said, no way, someone is Egyptian and he's in a Hollywood movie. And he's speaking, he's speaking like that. What, what, wow, what, how, why is that possible? And I think he definitely inspired me. And seeing him in Funny Girl and Dr. Zhivago. And I love him in Dr. Zhivago. Oh. Yeah, and he's just one of the most charismatic actors I ever saw growing up. And I thought if it's possible for someone who looks like that, I mean, he is a very good looking man, but knowing where he came from and reading up on his background, and if it's possible, then surely it's possible now. Mm. And I thought it would be so easy to play any character, any part, because he essentially opened the gates to that or he paved the way for it but I quickly found out that he was an anomaly but it didn't sway me from not wanting to try and even carve half the career that he did so yeah he was definitely a catalyst towards me wanting to to pursue this as a career not just a hobby. I think it's really interesting that how you seeing somebody who looked like you on screen from such a young age gave rise to the idea that this was something you could do. And that's just another reason why it's so important that we are able to see ourselves represented on screen. But then not only did you have that with Omar Sharif seeing him on screen, you actually had an IRL encounter <laughs> with this incredible actor. Yeah, that's thanks to my dad, really. I was 18 and my father has zero social inhibitions whatsoever. I mean, he, would, he could walk up to Tom Cruise and go, my son is an actor, by the way, just like you. <laughs> just like you. You and him, I can, you know, it's really hard to even see who's who. You're so alike. So he saw Omar Sharif in Paris. He calls me, he's like, I am five feet away from Omar Sharif. You want to talk to him? And I was like, what? You want to talk to him? One second, one second. I was like, wait, wait, dad, wait. And sure enough, I'm on the phone to Omar Sharif. He doesn't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I'm like, Hi. <laughs> He's like, yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Uh, uh, your, your father is a big fan of you, I see. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Okay, well, uh, good luck, good luck. And then my father, he turns to me, he says, do you want to come? So I said, like, where? He said, oh, I'm in Paris, come. I said, uh, why? He said, just, just come, you know, blow off some steam, it's your birthday, just come. So my, my brother gets me a ticket to Eurostar, I go over there. I'm uh, outside Charles de Gaulle and my dad is like, meet me outside and he's in a car. I was like, where are we going? He's like, you will see. And we drive for a couple of hours to an area called Duville. And I said, well, dad, where are we going? He's like, you will see, one second. And we go into this hotel. I was like, well, what? dad, are we staying here? He's like, no. And he goes to the reception and he's like, we're here to see Omar Sharif. I was like, what the, f what? <laughs> and he's, he's like, just one second. The reception's like, is he expecting you? He's like, yes, 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 yes. So he calls him, my heart is racing. I'm like, oh, we're gonna get done, I swear. This is, this is awful, this is an awful plan. And sure enough, I see Omar Sharif walking down the stairs and my dad rushes over to him and he says, hi, this is me from the other day. My son is actually here. If you could just say hi to him, it would make his life. And we ended up sitting there for two hours and Omar Sharif embraces me like as if I'm his grandson. He was such a generous, and caring and loving man. He was so, yeah, he, he gave me so much insight into the world. And he said, if you want to get into this, you just have to be lucky. Yes, do the training, do the work, but you just have to be here at the right place at the right time. And as a matter of fact, I don't want to go to my premiere. Why don't you go? 
essentially make your own luck. I looked at the corner, and my dad is just winking at me like, eh, you know, okay. <laughs> and so here I am, and my train is going to his film premiere in Paris by myself on the red carpet. And people are expecting Omar Sharif to come out of the car, and they see this kid, and then <laughs> they just halt with the cameras. And I'm, like, and I'm unashamedly walking down this red carpet. And then someone takes me to his seat, but I felt too guilty to sit in his place. So I sat on the steps right next to where the, the writer and director were. And at the end, I just started talking to them and, and they said, oh, wow, are you British? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm, my next film is about this young British Egyptian kid. Do you want to audition for it? It's incredible. And I said, are you joking? He said, no, yeah, but it's in Egypt. And I said, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I'd love to. And then it spiraled. And, and that film, the film I ended up doing, Ramadan Mabrook, Abu Amin Hamouda, became like one of the highest box office comedies for, for the next 10 years. And it won eight Egyptian Oscars. It was an incredible, incredible journey and start to my career on, on screen. Your dad must have just been sitting there feeling so proud and so vindicated. <laughs> He's like, see, my methods pay off. I think, yeah, I mean, it's all down to him. To this day, it's if you don't ask, you don't get. Mm. It's with everything. Don't be so polite with everything. People don't carry on or, or progress in their careers, in their respective careers, whatever you do, if you just don't ask. What's the worst that can happen? Mm. In any situation, not even work. <laughs> to someone that you fancy even or someone that you're enamored with or, you know, what's the worst that can happen? They're going to tell you, Ugh, no. Okay, all right, you move on. I still get shy and I still get tentative. What if they blah, blah, blah. But everybody has their own wants and fears and and hopes and dreams we're all made up of the same thing so as long as you have that in mind then you can uh, you can progress in anything it's just an incredible routine because then you did go to drama school and whole career after that but having a routine that's through egyptian cinema i have very little awareness of egyptian cinema did you have much of a relationship with it before that and what is different about it compared to what we know from Europe and Hollywood. I grew up watching Egyptian cinema as well. The golden age of cinema. I mean, Omar Sharif was actually simultaneously he was doing Egyptian films and Hollywood at the same time. And yeah, the golden age there was incomparable. It was one of the top industries below Hollywood. Our budgets were higher than British films. It was pretty full on then. Ironically, my first film was with an actor called Mohammed Hanidi, and the first ever Egyptian film I watched was of him in a film called Saidi fil Jama' al Amerikaya. Saidi is like a like an upper Egyptian who goes to an American university for the first time. So it was quite surreal doing my first Egyptian film with him. I think my experience was was this: I came in, and the director looked at me, and he threw the script to the side, and he said, "I want you to just be you in every scene. I'll give you your objective. I'll tell you where you start and where you end." And you just live, live in the scene. I carried that on for about a month and a half doing that film. And actually it freed me up. It made me feel like there's nothing to lose. I didn't have anything to adhere to other than my objective, which was great. <laughs> and it goes back again to feeding off the other, reacting to the other person, being alive in the moment. Which actor have you starred opposite that do you feel has really helped you to raise your game? There are a few. I've been very lucky that I've worked with a couple that have been very generous. Tom Hiddleston, actually, uh, in The Night Manager. I remember being so nervous, shamedly. I didn't watch Thor, any of the Thors, but I knew of Tom Hiddleston. I knew he was a huge figure and everybody was like, oh, Loki, Loki, Loki. And I remember the second I met him, he hugged me and he was like, right, we got to make 
six-year friendship in a day. Let's do this. <laughs> and we hung out for the day and we started talking about stuff and things that we're afraid of, things that we, that we find funny. And we started watching videos about the Arab Spring. He collated loads. He's, he researches in depth. And he had archive footage of people in, in protests. And we started watching together. And then he gave me his playlist of songs that he listens to before every scene. And I thought, wow, this is, this is great. This is a real treat. <laughs> and I remember before one scene, he was listening to something with a high, fast beat to it. And he gives me his headphones and he's like, right, this is exactly the, the sort of feel that we need to get into this moment. And I was very happy to listen to that because I'd just been a few years out of drama school and I just love to learn. I, lo I love to feed off the other person. And it was great, just even musically. To think of a scene as a piece of music was new to me. To understand the beat of the scene, rather than just understand the context or the, or the change or switch in a scene. To go at it as a dance was new. And that was great. That's something that I've taken from that experience with Tom to, to this day. Woody Harrelson, he's the only actor I've ever met that you laugh at when you look at him, but also get extremely, extremely scared of. And I think he's the only person I know off the top of my head that can do both. And do both and win an Oscar for, or be nominated for. You know, in Three Billboards, he, he managed to embody both. He managed to do both, be, be both very tragic and hilarious. With Lost in London, we had a couple of gags, and if someone didn't land the joke, he'd give it to someone else. So you were always on your toes. And he'd listen, he'd listen in to, to the timing of the joke. If it doesn't work, can we give it to someone else? Which was, uh, yeah. Did you get one taken away from you? Yeah, I had one taken away from me and one given to me. It was in the same scene, actually, so it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> you were just saying how you didn't necessarily see Thor or the big Marvel blockbusters. When did you last feel that you were really like discovering a film or a performer rather than just going on the biggest box office hit I, I appreciate marvel movies i appreciate them and i appreciate you know the dc world as well and and i really really respect the art of it but i never came into acting going i want to play spider-man or you know a marvel movie i think uh it's a shame that maybe there is there is a generation out there that only knows cinema as just that i remember going to a martin scorsese talk a couple years back and he was saying how like he, he found it so hard to get funding for The Irishman because no one wants to take that risk. And, and when you look on paper, you're like, take a risk on who? On, <laughs> on Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci? Are you, are you kidding me? On Martin Scorsese? Is that a risk? I mean, to be fair, no one's heard of The Irishman. I don't even know what you're about. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? In truth, it's, it's a sad tale that there are people who aren't introduced into the independent cinema or, or, or films that are about the everyday man and woman, or the people who are just, just living and struggling. That should be the gateway into cinema. And then everything else. Even not going too far away is Tom Hanks in Castaway or, or Big. And the idea of just playing with that, just stories that could happen to anybody, essentially. Maybe not so much big, but maybe Castaway. But just being the idea of being away from your family, being away from your loved ones, mm. being away from his wife for, for years and having to survive. I mean, that's an extreme case, but the, the ingredients are there that we can relate to. The idea of separation. 
I can't relate to a man who shoots beams out of his eyes. I can appreciate it and I can enjoy it. But wanting to be that would make me sad because I know in reality I'm never going to be like that. (laughs) Well, I suppose speaking of roles that you can relate to, tell us about your initial reaction when you got the limbo script and why this was such an important role for you. The first time I, I read it, I laughed and cried. I'd never read anything that talks about the refugee crisis in such a way where where Omar is is the central character and Ben gives him complete agency to make his own decisions and there isn't like a western character that is showing him a a better way of living we don't just pity Omar or we don't antagonize him in any way like certain other f- films or or media present uh, refugees or people seeking asylum i never once pitied Omar from reading it i i read it as someone who is from a, such a rich, culturally rich background who has an in-depth knowledge of, of, of music and, and he talks about his country with such pride, someone who was really, really proud of where he came from, rather than the idea that it's just a war-torn country and, oh gosh, I, you know, of course they'd want to be here in England, of course. No, he wouldn't want to be anywhere else other than back home with his family playing music. That's something that I really, really appreciated from from reading it and I fought tooth and nail to to, to kind of just get in the room to to meet Ben and and Arune. I can't remember the last time I I really felt that way. Partly, yes, for for a selfish reason, because I wanted to finally be a leading man in a a film, but also because of the importance of the story and and the fact that this is the first time we're going to see a story about this subject matter where we have the central character telling his own story, not someone else telling the story for him. And there's the style. When you read the script, you you know exactly, you know the style of the film, the pace of the film. Ben goes into detail, describing even the way the wind blows or the, the trees or the, the landscape. You feel the pauses, you feel the breathing in the film, in the script. It was fantastic. You say that Limbo was an opportunity to play a leading man and thinking back to what you said earlier about how you met Omar Sharif and thought, that's it. But actually, there are so few leading men and leading man roles for Middle East and North African British actors. How would you describe that is it cause, responsibility of being the change you want to see and trying to change it? I think every once in a while there are very few cases. And I think Riz Ahmed even said it recently, it feels like he's an exception to the rule in some ways. And how do you become that? How do you get into that circle of where producers and casting directors don't look at you based off your background? But I can I can see you play a Jimmy or a or a David or a James or a Ben or, or whatever. It's a hard one, and I think it's it needs one person to take a punt on you. That's all it needs. And and I've been very grateful of a lot of casting directors. I've had my back from from the beginning, and I think I've taken this journey as a nurturing way in in the sense that. Maybe I wasn't ready then. And I think in hindsight, looking back at some of my peers as well, the idea of being boxed was actually a good thing. The idea of being stereotyped was a great thing because it allowed me to train that acting muscle, allowed me to play a lot more parts rather than try and audition for Downton Abbey for season one, season two, season three or whatever. I never had that opportunity. So I I didn't just try and get into something and that would be that. I knew what it was like to be in for a day or be in for a week on set and leave. And there is a certain sense of humility that, that doesn't come with drama school. You don't get taught how to behave on set. 
And I think there are the people who've known how to be a jobbing actor will be the ones ready to communicate on set in a much better way because they know what it's like to be, I guess, not, I don't want to say struggling, but they know what it's like to fight for that place. But yeah, I think we're getting closer to more inclusion. There's still a long way to go. And, and as the statistics have shown recently, Muslim characters are few and far represented on, on screen. But more than that, I feel like we need more writers, we need more producers that represent people in society from different backgrounds because they, they will be more likely to fight that fight and promote more inclusion and more diversity and equal representation in films and TV. And, and actually take it upon yourself as well, as much as it is a long game. I'm trying for myself to do what I can to create my own work and band together with other people, like-minded people who want to be their own master of their ship. And that's just playing the long game. I'm doing that alongside trying to get in the room for period dramas <laughs> or whatever. But um, <laughs> I think we're, we're edging closer. We're edging closer, but the dialogue needs to still be current. We still need to keep it going. To take it back to cinemas for a minute, I was wondering, was there a, a moment or a film that you saw in a cinema that really stuck with you and you're really, really pleased and that you saw it on a big screen? Because those moments are so special. Yeah, many. I would say more recently, I, I, I loved uh, Florian Zeller's The Father. I remember watching that with my dad, actually, in Cairo. It was in the opening of the Cairo Film Festival. I remember hugging my dad a few times <laughs> after that film, just because the idea of this man peeling away and you, you're seeing him peel away in front of your eyes. And his relationship with his, with his daughter, Olivia Coleman, who was also incredible. I think that was just, just a multi-layered character. And yet it, he made it look so easy, Anthony Hopkins. You see his, the mechanics in his mind play. He, he plays it with conviction that he is, he is of sane mind. Yes, I was a dancer or I was, you know, it, it's, yes. there's no going, going you know, there's two ways about it. But you as you are like, oh, fuck. oh man, if only, if only someone can just, can make him realise that was a clear moment for me that impacted me more recently. I can imagine seeing that with family members as well would hammer home that emotional thread even more. I wondered, you know, since your dad plays such a pivotal role in that phone call, what does he make of your career and seeing you on screen? He is my biggest fan, for sure. You know, my, my whole family are. But if he ventured into a career of PR, I think he would be unrivaled. <laughs> unrivaled. <laughs> no, bless him. I think he is an artist at heart. He's an incredible storyteller. He's the funniest man I know. Yeah, he's incredibly charming. He'll charm you, trust me. <laughs> I already feel charmed through you by him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was, he was an accountant. I remember telling him when I first wanted to act, I said, yeah, Dad, I want to be an actor. He's like, oh, you know, there's no money in acting. You should, uh, you know, go to law school or, uh, you know, go do business or something. And when I actually landed a few roles, he's like, oh, you got it from me, by the way. <laughs> I think he was just worried, as any parent would be. The consistency isn't there. The idea of, can you live off this job? Is this something that you can actually, you can do long term? Once the, the recognition started coming and him seeing me on stage as well played a huge part. 
You know, he saw he saw someone that really loved what he was doing, and it made me happy. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's uh, yeah, he's super super supportive. And actually, when I film things in Egypt, I try as much as possible for him to be part of that experience and and to and come watch me on on set and and see what it's like there and and see the mechanics behind everything. When you're watching yourself on screen, what sort of experience is that? Some people find it so cringy. Other people are just like, oh, I need to work on this. What do you like? Nervous. I get so nervous when I watch something for the first time because I'm. I think of many different things. This is always the case. After I wrap any project, I go, "Oh, I should have done it like that. I should have done it like that. Oh, oh, why didn't I experiment? Or why didn't I do this?" But you've got to let go. You've got to let go and forget about it and watch it. I try as much as possible to try and not just focus on myself and just watch the scene. It's very hard. I cringe. I have to watch the thing at least a couple times until I can get it out. With Limbo, because I loved the process so much and I knew what take they were going to use because of the, the, the strong relationship we had on set, I knew what to expect with the film. And I think that was the only time I ever felt that way. I was fairly relaxed watching it. I had a box of tissues next to me, especially the, the phone call scenes with my mum. You know, the, those, those scenes get me every time and the scene with my with my brother as well get me every time partly because of my my own friendship with my brothers and, and and being at a place where it was very hard to to communicate with any of them that film allowed me to appreciate the bare bones of what we really need in life and what we need to to survive really but yeah i do cringe i do cringe I, what, 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 i've cringed at you know i, I cringed at myself watching uh, daniel where, where i played uh, jihadi john just because I was like, <laughs> this is not you, man. This is not you. Like you are, this man is a terror, an absolute terror. Uh, he's uh, you know, such an evil, evil character to play. And he was ferocious and, and vile and all the bad things. And just knowing, I'd like to think I'm not that at heart. So watching that, I was like, gosh, that was tough. It was tough to watch. How easy is it for you to shed a character like that after you finish playing them? Do they still sort of haunt your dreams or can you just leave it behind as soon as filming's wrapped the funny thing was Dan daniel it was back to back with limbo and ben was worried ben was really worried actually i think when i told them by the way i'm doing this, this film about this danish photographer who gets captured by isis and i play the guy who's responsible for killing james foley he was like right okay are you are you mentally going to be ready for for omar because this is far off from from that I managed to put it to bed. I think I was lucky because Daniel Rue, the actual photographer who got captured, was with us. He came to visit set. And it was a very therapeutic moment, mainly for, for, for him, I think. Seeing his life played out in front of him was a way of accepting his perpetrator, forgiving him. And I think the most important thing to, to shed away from any character is to find their human side. And it's really hard with certain characters it's really really hard but you have to understand why they why nobody's born a villain nobody's born going right i want to wreak havoc i just want to no it's because of something that has let them down or they feel let down by someone they feel hurt and once you get into the pain of the character you start to understand oh gosh no they're, they're a human being and it's really hard it's really really hard and and there are kind of where your moral standpoint is at that on that issue but you you have to you have to humanize anyone in order to move away and forgive and move on
yeah it's uh it's a it's a tricky one so to wrap up let's bring this back to your dream cinema experience that we're making happen so we're at the curzon soho or alternatively what's the cinema in acton you mentioned was it was it a particular chain oh it's it's in park royal it's a view cinema yeah in park royal okay but let's go for curzon soho a bit more central yeah. people can can get to a bit easier and you gave us i think three films in the end so i think we <laughs> yeah. need to narrow this down a little bit so it's between taxi driver goodfellas and victoria so maybe we can stretch your double bill make it a full evening at the pictures mm. which would you go for let's go for victoria Let's go over okay, Victoria. Yeah. Now we we leave probably the most important question for last, uh, the most contentious and divisive question, and that's what are we drinking and eating during the film, if anything? Where do you stand on cinema snacks? I'm a full advocate of popcorn, <laughs> <laughs> but sweet, salty, sweet and salty. Mix it up a bit. Ooh, okay, right. um, mm-hmm. But if you're watching The Artist, yeah. I got in trouble <laughs> with an audience member. I brought in some <laughs> snacks. I was at a cinema in, uh, what was it, in Richmond. And, uh, <laughs> and I, was, I was eating these snacks that I think was nachos, which were, had a crunchy sound. Obviously, it's a, it's a silent film. And I remember this lady, this woman coming over to me. She's like, do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I am so sorry. I was just, it's just a... Yeah, I'll, I'll put it down. <laughs> That's the most bougie thing going into yeah. a silent film in Richmond as well. <laughs> I know it was pretty. It was pretty bougie. It was pretty bougie. I think my my girlfriend at the time she lived in Kingston. It was the, um, the closest one for us to both kind of meet, mm. equidistant. That's all right. Uh, you don't have to defend yeah, it. Yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but uh, the audience there were very uh, eclectic. They're anti-snack. <laughs> what are the snacks like in a cinema in Cairo in comparison to a to a UK cinema? Well, we have falafels and shawarma. Mm. I'm joking, no, we don't. Can you imagine <laughs> the smell if you had that? <laughs> Just popcorn. Just, Just popcorn. popcorn. Mm-hmm. But extra salty, I think. My experience with popcorn there is uh, they add, add a little bit more salt to it. What about the pick and mix scenario? Pick and mi- I, you know, I was never a pick and mix fan. I will do it just for you. Yeah, no, I will. I will go back, <laughs> and I will Thank go you. to Park Royal, and I'll go to Soho Cousin, and then I'll go to Cairo, <laughs> and I'll sample it, and I'll, Take and I'll, I'll yeah, I'll tweet you. <laughs> I appreciate it, Amir. Thank you. No worries. <laughs> so that sounds like a really terrific night at the pictures, and then you know, even a, a bit of an international trip as well uh, to check out the check out the snacks in Cairo <laughs> too. Amir Amatri, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me both. So nice talking to Amir Elmazri. He has got so many great male role models in his life. So loved hearing about Tom Hiddleston taking him under his wing and making him listen to specific music to get into the the right mindset for the night manager. I almost picture it in my mind as Amir is Zach Braff in Garden State and he's having his mind blown by Tom Hiddleston putting earbuds in his ears. I love that it's so true and you know we do love family stories on this podcast and i think amir's various dad anecdotes are the ones to beat now i love the idea of amir's dad just sitting with him in the cinema and being like you could do this better than all of these actors he's definitely that kind of dad you know so thank you again to amir for sharing that conversation with us it was a real pleasure to talk to him and if you enjoy the conversation and you want to hear more like it then check back in our podcast feed to catch up on any episodes of the show that you might have missed and if you haven't already subscribe to the show to get the next episode dropped straight into your podcast app thanks for listening bye 
This is My Cinema is a Little Dot Studios production for Biffa. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Jake Cunningham, Ellie Aitken and Harold McShiel. And we're edited by Content is Queen. 